thousands of children are school striking for the climate on the streets of Brussels. Hundreds of thousands are doing the same all over the world. Let's flood the world of climate activists. Let's get out of the zones of convenience and join forces and start taking ourselves more seriously. Welcome to our podcast. We are historians for future, and we want to know what historians and other researchers or activists have to say about a climate emergency, our history and our future. Our aim is to provide a historical perspective on the climate and biodiversity crisis we are facing. How did we get here and where might we go? Hello, my name is Isa and joining us today is Asma Orukia, who is currently pursuing their doctoral degree at Mary Immaculate College in Limerick, Ireland. For our topic, science is key, but what about the humanities? Asma is the perfect fit. I'm very curious to learn more about the role of social issues, especially feminism and other intersectional problematics in understanding and addressing the climate emergency we are facing. Asma, welcome. Okay, so jumping right into it. As an eco-feminist, what do you care about the future? Because I care about the potential future children I might have. And I am not somebody who only thinks about the present. I care about the future because I have hope for humanity. I want to see a better world, a cleaner world and a healthier world. And I believe that people regenerate, like you cannot create or destroy energy. And I know that even if I'm not going to be there, I will be there in another form, probably. So sustainability is like my kind of lifestyle. <laughs> that sounds like a very reasonable answer. <laughs> okay, now, um, if I understand you correctly, you're not strictly speaking a historian, but out of curiosity, do you think the past is important to tackle the climate crisis? Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I don't, a lot of people think that studying the past is merely for like gaining insights, but when it comes to environmental history, for an example, or studying the human, non-human uh, nature interactions over time, the study itself, like it basically looks at environments and climates from the past, as well as ecosystems and different plants and animals and species and how they all functioned, how they, which one of them survived and how they survived and so on. So it looks at the modes of production, for an example, say from the hunter-gatherer communities to industrial capitalism and so on. And as well, the very nature, term nature itself. So if we look back at all this, for me, it's all about studying human patterns and how our species have long, for an example, responded to crises, to natural disasters, to the changing of seasons and so on. And what we can do now is learn from those patterns and learn from the former responses of uh, former generations and how their reactions either served us or didn't 
and what we can do to improve those patterns in the present and in the future. I really like the way you, you know, used the word, um, the word patterns. And um, I was thinking of if we could also describe it as, you know, not just learning from patterns, but learning of alternatives. Yeah, that there's exactly. always an alternative to what we think is like bound to happen or like a, the most obvious, the most logic turn of events. But um, it is all about alternatives. Exactly. Like in the case, if those patterns or those reactions or responses, if they did not serve us or if they did not serve us the way we wanted them to, it is nice to look, like you said, at alternatives because there is always another way. That's what I believe in. There is always another way. Okay. So let's talk about your own research. And um, what is it exactly that you do? Well, at the moment, I am a final year PhD uh, studying ecofeminism, expanding it, basically looking at the things that other ecofeminists haven't yet. But do you want to know, like, how the whole thing started? And <laughs> or do you want me to yeah, tell us, yeah, be stories, be always interested in the story. How did it begin? I'll take you back to seven years ago, then up till now. So basically seven years ago, I started working in the field of renewables. I was working in the field of renewable energy and energy efficiency in Morocco. So I worked in the field for two years. And during the second year, I started a part-time master's degree in uh, green cultural studies or environmental humanities, because I saw that the efforts of companies, the hard sciences, the tech industry, and the whole lot of work that all the engineers and technicians and scientists were putting into this energy transition was never going to be enough without the social work and without the humanities. So the institute where I worked was investing a lot of money and a lot of efforts into leading my country towards a clean energy. And they set all these targets and like by 2025, we're going to have like this amount of emissions and so on. But I was interacting with the trainees. I was interacting with the people, with the people working there, the parents, the friends asking me about my job. And then I realized that the energy transition is not going to be possible. It's not going to be as successful as we want it to be without societal mobilization and without acknowledging, for an example, how issues such as land contamination or extractivism or, I don't know, access to clean water have impacts on farmers, indigenous groups, and so on. So. You just cannot paint a bright future on a dirty canvas. I just, you can't just ignore it and people will not find an appealing. So halfway through my MA, I realized that my call was to be one that, one of the people that basically bridged the gap between the hard sciences and the humanities. So after finishing my master's, I came to Ireland and I started the PhD by research uh, where I focused specifically on ecofeminism, which was a one of the modules in my master's degree. Ecofeminism was for me not only a movement, because it was a movement that started in the 1970s, it wasn't only a field in academia, but to me it represented a solution to multiple political and environmental and social issues that the world is facing, uh, especially in the global south. So it just, it resonated with me because even after two years of studying um, climate governance and policies and eco-criticism and other fields, I realized how gender, sexuality and race were issues that were barely, if not at all, addressed when it comes to environmental studies. 
So I've been researching climate skepticism, queer ecology, queer ecofeminism, because as a non-binary gay person of color myself, I know that finding my place and belonging and finding safety was really important for me to actually connect with this ecosystem that I am part of and that's keeping me alive. So in addition to this, I also know that environmental degradation, especially in the, in the anthropogenic one, the one that's man-made caused by humans, does not affect people equally. So ecofeminism is basically was the getaway to addressing multiple issues and to acknowledging that, hey, we're not on the same boat. We're on the same storm, but we're definitely not on the same boat. So that's pretty much it. <laughs> Quite a story. And um, I was particularly intrigued by um, how you describe this, um, I don't know what we could call it a movement, but the idea of like a green energy transition. And this has this very, you know, very logic and, and clean idea behind it. So it's just, you know, it's just transition from one state to the next. And um, so what, what, what I've heard when you talked about it, it was like, it's not such a simple transition, such a simple story. And that's where you, you know, where you, where you got your teeth in. Well, transitioning, like I was talking specifically about transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable energies, but that transition is not just technical. It's not just going to happen by advertising solar panels or by encouraging people to opt for solar thermal energy. The change has to be societal first. People need to be convinced. People need to know and people need to have their basic needs met first. Because if there is like a campaign, for an example, telling people, oh, if you switch to photovoltaic panels, you're going to have free electricity. Somebody who can afford it, like, I don't know, people in the global north, that's not going to be an issue. But someone who's barely able to keep a roof over their head, that's not going to be a priority. So, yeah. Yeah, and um, you mentioned ecofeminism a few times, and you describe yourself as a, a ecofeminist. You are ecofeminist. Uh, how would you how would you define it? What do you think are the most important points to you know to realize why ecofeminism is an important thing? Basically, if I could sum up, when somebody asks me this questions like about ecofeminism, I'm like, this is my Trojan horse walking into it. Like, do you really want me to start? <laughs> but briefly, ecofeminism would be the field that links the oppression of nature and the oppression of the environment to the oppression of other vulnerable people. It started with linking women and nature initially back in the 70s. And I was kind of against that because it had like an essentialist view. It was like, oh, women are fertile and women are submissive and so is nature. So that's why they're both oppressed. And to me it was like, no, the notion of woman should not be, oh, she's a woman because she's fertile and so on. So I kind of like separated those definitions, but I still liked that ecofeminism expanded to not only women, but the LGBT community or indigenous people or people of color and so on. So it sees that there is a patriarchal system that is, impacting the environment and that environmental degradation is directly caused by that system that is also oppressing uh, other humans who are not cis, hetero, white men, basically. 
Yeah, taking up a keyword that you, I think, haven't mentioned yet, the idea of um, social justice. I mean, this is one of like the big keywords also in environmental um, activism. Um, is this like a tag you think is, is useful for your work or is it like too general, too global because it just refers to some kind of yeah, universal social justice? What is your, what's your stance on that? Social justice is actually a big part of ecofeminism. Like I am sure if I click control F on my thesis and type social justice, it's gonna be repeated multiple times. But basically ecofeminism sees that environmental justice is social justice. Like you cannot achieve environmental justice without social justice. So it basically, we're all parts of an ecosystem and we cannot only care about, okay, let's stop extractivism or let's stop drilling without caring about what happens to the people who are being affected by that drilling or by, because it's not only the earth itself that's impacted, it's us as species. And you cannot, like I said, achieve environmental or climate justice without ensuring that there is justice for human beings. Yeah. And, um... Maybe coming back to your own research and our uh, very specific interest as historians for future, um, we talked now about um, eco-feminism. We talked about social justice. Uh, what is your historical angle to to your topic that you um, study in your thesis? So uh, before I started my thesis, I developed like a real big interest in uh, Irish literature and. What's caught my attention was the Irish Great Hunger, which is uh, basically a famine, quote unquote, I call it genocide that happened in the 19th century in Ireland. And basically half of the population died and a large majority migrated because there was a blight. There was a blight that basically stopped the potato crops from growing. But my research, which was uh, like mind-blowing like these past three years I've been reading a lot and like digging into the past how during a crisis like that which was obviously man-made I do not believe in any way that it was because of the potatoes or because there was no food but it was there was no access to food the food was being produced in Ireland but it was shipped to the UK and the rest of the world it's just the people were not able to afford it so when I look at the history of what happens when there is a famine? There were many things that have never, that no one ever wrote about, like the human trafficking of girls, for an example. At that time of vulnerability, what did people do? There was a scheme created called the Earl Grey scheme and like, oh, we're gonna save the girls from starvation, but there was criteria for this girl. They had to be virgins. They had to be between 13 to 17 years old. They had to be like, they had to have gone to Catholic school and they shipped them to Australia to save them star from starvation. But what actually happened is they were married to convicts in Australia at that time. So when you look at the history of what happens when it comes to environmental catastrophes or any sort of crises, you also learn about human patterns, like I was talking about earlier, and how even during the time of misfortune, people tend to like exercise sort like different kinds of oppression. So what I'm like working on right now is like, there are current famines happening in different parts of the world, sadly, because 
it doesn't make sense that it's the 21st century and there are still people starving in many parts of the world. So I'm looking at the food deficiency and the food entitlement uh, in many parts of the world and how can we learn from the 19th century famine in Ireland because it still happened in the white world, like we say. And there were still like loads of fatalities and the trauma is still lingering here, for sure. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us insight into your research. Um, now, coming to the end of our podcast, um, what what are the main points you would like to, you know, to yeah, summarize and give to us as your audience? Well, uh, I've always been like inclined, like to read about environmental history and looking at the past and what we can do what we can learn from the past and how can we implement that in the present and the future. And I would say, just remember that climate change, even if it's inevitable, even if it's uh, happened many times before, it definitely is gonna happen again. We as individuals, as human beings and as companies and as corporations are the reason why this acceleration, like why this uh, warming is being accelerated. So it is nice to just like take a deep breath look back at what we have done and what we can change because i believe that people as individuals can make a change anybody who could be listening right now could be a decision maker tomorrow they could be somebody whose voice matters whose decision will impact either small communities or bigger communities so make sure you use your voice and your power wisely because it does have an effect and uh, yeah thank you Esma, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so much, Isabella. It was a pleasure. <laughs>